Good morning, church. Happy New Year. The scripture reading this morning comes to us from Zechariah chapter 12, and we'll be reading from verses 1 through 14. Zechariah 12. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on, on whom, him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be great as the mourning for Hadad Rimen in the plain of Megiddo. The, plain, the land shall mourn each family by itself the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. For the reading, Pastor Paul, and also uh, love how Pastor Andrew has brought the fire while giving the announcements. Um, I think he didn't miss one thing, though, because Pastor Sheung approached me uh, a few minutes ago, asked me to make sure you all know that there is a congregational meeting that's scheduled for about 1, I would say, 15 after lunch, okay? And we're going to meet in the Cam Sanctuary, just to make sure we accommodate everyone there. So if you are a member... You are expected to be there, right? If you're a non-member, if you're an attender, you want to observe, you're welcome to observe, okay? Uh, so all are welcome, but not everyone's going to be able to vote on the budget and such, okay? So it's going to be an informative meeting. Uh, it'll benefit you if you attended, okay? All right, what else? I have here uh, <clears throat> Allison Jung, uh, who is visiting us for the first time, friends of Anna Lee Allison. We're not going to embarrass you too much here. Where are you sitting? Where are you sitting? Where? Oh, at the front here. Okay, let's give a warm welcome for Allison. Uh, glad you can join us. I also see uh, 
Gloria, who I haven't seen in a long time. She's sitting in the middle over there. Just raise your hand for us, Gloria, so we can recognize you. Uh, good to see you, Gloria. Also, uh, there's a pastor family, uh, Pastor John, former senior pastor of CFAN's with us, with his family as well. So, yeah, Panga Sina Muksani. All right. And sorry if I missed you. I know that there are a few more of you visiting, but um, yeah, please uh, stop by the welcoming desk, grab some of our staff members, and let us know who you are, okay, afterwards. All right, I think that's it for now. Okay. Uh, we are nearing the end of our series in the book of Zechariah, and today we're going to look at chapter 12 together. And I, I do think there are only maybe two more messages left in this series. But uh, chapter 12 offers us a future vision of what the church is supposed to look like. You know, when you read these verses, I, I want you to feel as if you are looking into a mirror and seeing an image of who you are supposed to be as a people of God. Of course, when these words were first given, uh, they were first spoken to ancient Israel, and so we would expect these words of prophecy to be at least partially fulfilled in some way during those ancient times, but I've come to realize, and scholars agree for the most part, that this chapter, it's different, okay? It stands out from all the other chapters we've covered so far because of the repeated usage of the phrase, on that day, if you're paying attention to the reading, you have heard on that day repeated several times, or on that day, on that day, right? It's used a whopping nine times in this small section of Zechariah from chapter 12, and the ninth time it's used is chapter 13, verse 4. It's only used twice prior to this, once in chapter 9 and once in chapter 11, so this repeated Usage of this phrase is an unusual thing. And so the prophecies we read about in this chapter are considered by most scholars to be directly associated with the day of the Lord. Okay, if you don't know what that is, scripturally, it's a day, it's mentioned in scripture a lot, but it's a day that's normally understood in connection with Jesus' coming in some form or another. And so when we read this chapter, we should read this as prophecies that are directly meant to describe what the church, right, this, not just ancient Jerusalem anymore, the new Jerusalem, right? If you know your Bible, you know that, that the church is described as a new Jerusalem, right? The, not, not ancient Israel, but true Israel, right? You're, you're, you're to envision what this new Jerusalem, this true Israel is meant to look like. Now, even though we may not be perfected yet as a people of God, right, I want you to know as you're reading this, as you're studying this with me, that this is the image that we're to bear. These are the qualities that we're to possess as God's people. And I believe if we approach this chapter with that in mind, you're gonna be able to get a lot more out of it, okay? With that said, I wanted to unpack a total of five very interesting expressions or descriptors that are used to uh, depict God's people. I tried to <laughs> edit this so it's, it's not a long sermon, and 
I, I had six on my list, and so I had to shrink it down to five, actually. But I want to warn you beforehand that the, the message today, it may sound a bit choppy, because I normally don't preach like this, right? Uh, but there is a unifying theme, and the unifying theme is that, again, these are expressions that are meant to describe who we are meant to be as a church. And so what, what are these expressions? The first notable expression I wanted to make sure we notice is a cup of staggering. Have you ever heard that expression before? A cup of staggering. What could this mean? Right, verse 2 says, Jerusalem, or the church, will be made to be a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. In other words, the nations will presume that they could as easily take this cup and swallow it and basically destroy the people of God, but instead, they will take the cup, they will drink, and they will become confounded by the people of God. They'll be confused, they'll be dazed, be staggered. That's the picture here. But why do you think any unbeliever would stagger in response to the Christian's testimony? Or do you think it would be because a Christian decided to do one of these, just, you know, beat the guy off top of his head and stagger the guy? No. It's more like the world is stunned and staggered because of the astounding work of grace that God effects in one's life. A few weeks ago, I showed my small group a scene from the movie version of Les Miserables, right? Les Mis, where Liam Neeson plays Jean Varjean. Right? I'm not sure if I pronounced that accurately, but I never took French, okay? That's the best I can do. It's, it's the best scene in the movie uh, that I showed, and it illustrates this cup of staggering very well. You see, Jean Varjean, he was desperate. He needed a place to stay, and so he knocks on the door of this priest, and the priest kindly takes him in, he offers Jean Valjean a warm meal, a clean bed, but Jean Valjean in his depraved state, he decides to, in the middle of the night, steal precious silverware from the priest's home. The priest sees him, and he does one of the, he knocks the priest, the priest is, you know, he falls unconscious. The next morning, Turns out Jean Valjean is caught by the police and the police bring him back to the priest's home and this is where it's, it's a powerful scene and uh, whenever I see that scene, I have a hard time holding back my tears because the priest does something amazing. Instead of condemning Jean Valjean and cussing him out, he says, essentially, brother, <laughs> I'm so glad to see you because I meant to also give you the candlesticks and not just the silverware. And as you can imagine, Jean Valjean's response is dazed and confused, stunned, staggered. What kind of kindness is this? I've never seen such a, a grace offered to me. Why? How could you do this? That, that was his response. That's what this passage means by the cup of staggering. It's what I also tried to describe to you last week when I introduced to you Pastor Son, okay? Uh, full name was what? 
Chonyang Wan, or Wan, I forget the full name, but Pastor Son, okay? He was the pastor who sucked the pus out of the leper's wounds, and that in itself was amazing, but to me, the more shocking detail was in how he adopted the young man who murdered his two sons. One of my mentors who knows Pastor Son's story very well put it like this. There's a kind of goodness that we sometimes see in people that gives us this warm and fuzzy feeling. It's like, oh, that's so nice. No, that's so good. That's, that's great. And it makes us all warm and fuzzy inside. But then there's a radical form of grace that we see demonstrated by people like Pastor Son that is, his words, soul jolting. I like that expression, soul jolting. It's the same thing, staggers you. It doesn't give you this warm and fuzzy feeling. It actually knocks you off balance, right? And it makes you say, how is this humanly possible? I don't understand. Brothers and sisters, even if it may, may feel impossible for you to demonstrate such a radical grace in your lives right now, this is a quality that's meant to be yours and mine. So please do not turn from it. Don't think it's impossible. Embrace it, learn to embrace it, and learn to embody it more and more as you mature in your faith. And that is the way we will become the cup of staggering that will confound those who seek our downfall in this life. Another expression that's used to describe us, the church, is heavy stone. It says in verse three, on that day, right, there's that expression, on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. So think about what that may mean. People will try to remove God's people. They will try to get rid of the church, but in the process of removing them, it turns out they will do damage to themselves. That is a prophecy. And I tell you, all these expressions we're covering today, it, it can in some way be tied back to who Jesus is. But for this one, I, I think making the immediate connection to Jesus would help you clarify, uh, or help you rather clearly see why removing the stone would cause great damage, okay? Let me point you to 1 Peter, for instance. 1 Peter says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. So what's the idea here? Well, Jesus, Jesus is the heavy stone that people are trying to remove. People do whatever they can to remove Jesus, who is God himself, from their lives, don't they? <clears throat> but the idea is that they will get hurt in the process. But let me ask you this. Do you think it's even possible to remove God from one's life? I think it's possible to try to ignore that he's there, right? It's possible to try to neglect God. I mean, you can pretend that life is possible without God or without Christ, but my question is this, are, are you really removing him from your life? <clears throat> or are you just 
living in denial that there's this heavy stone called God occupying the center of your life. One of my apologetics professors back in the day, <clears throat> and it was a common illustration that was used actually in our apologetics department. It went something like this, you know, you know how atheists, they try to deny God's existence? Well, it's, it's as if, I mean, imagine a young girl sitting on her father's lap, right? The very lap that is supporting her, the, the very being that she ought to depend on for her own very life, right? She's sitting on her father's lap and she dishonors him by slapping him across the face. That is like the atheist trying to deny, desperately trying to deny the existence of God. It doesn't really work in the end. By doing so, you actually harm yourself. Isaiah chapter eight says this, and he will become a sanctuary, a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it, referring to the Messiah. They shall fall and be broken. And Matthew, New Testament gospel, echoes the same expression. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So can't you see there, there are only two options in this life when it comes to what, we're, what we can do with this rock. You can either stand on the rock of Jesus and treat him as your very foundation stone, or you can choose to collide with this rock and be crushed in the end. What have you done with this rock? I invite all of you to stand on the rock of Jesus with me that we may build our lives upon this firm foundation rather than on choosing to build our lives upon sinking sand and be destroyed in the end. I also want you to realize this. The fact that we, that we as a church are being described as a heavy stone in this chapter means that we are called to faithfully represent Jesus in this world. Are you representing Jesus well? as a heavy stone in this world. You see, we're not to be a bunch of pushovers or moral compromisers. We're not to be like small pebbles that can be easily tossed without any consequence whatsoever. No, we're to be like heavy stones, virtually immovable, because we as the church are called to be guardians of the Weighty truths of God's word, can't you see? And again, if this is a quality that you think you don't fully possess yet, I ask that you would embrace it more and more and seek to embody more of it as you mature in your faith this year. We just cannot have members of Cornerstone be a bunch of pushovers and moral compromisers in this world. There's only one group in the church that gets a pass. 
okay? And they're the ones who are part of our Pebbles ministry, okay? Our one and two-year-olds, okay? We call them the Pebbles ministry. Once they graduate from Pebbles, guess where they go? They go to the Stepping Stones ministry, our three and above, okay? They're not called Pebbles anymore, they're called Stones, and they should live differently. They should be rather immovable. It's our responsibility to train them to think in such a way right, that they will give honor to God. I'll explain the third and fourth expressions together since they basically mean the same thing. Okay, it says in verse six, on that day, there is that expression again, that phrase, on that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot. That's number three, okay? A blazing pot in the midst of wood and like a flaming torch, that's number four, among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples. What could this mean? Well, Given that Jesus is depicted as a consuming fire that can destroy people as well as a refiner's fire in the Bible that can purify and sanctify people, I think this expression, or these expressions rather, can possess a dual meaning, right? both a negative and a positive. Right? On the one hand, anyone who rejects the authority Christ has given to his church will be judged and condemned in the end by his fire of judgment, by his consuming fire, let's say. But on the other hand, anyone who is receptive to the gospel of grace, which the church is to boldly proclaim, will become positively ignited with the fire of the gospel themselves. But everyone will, be, will catch fire in some way, you see. That's the picture. So, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that it is not our responsibility to determine who will be condemned or who will be on fire for the Lord in a positive way. That's, that's beyond the scope of our responsibility. Our responsibility is to make sure that the fire of the gospel continues to burn within us that we're not abandoning the gospel ourselves and having that fire within us flicker out and die out. See, that's what we're held responsible for, right? what we do with the gospel. And if this fire of the gospel is going to spread right, in whichever direction, we're gonna need to remain faithful to the gospel, no matter what hardship may come our way. And okay, as, as our deacon Tim prayed earlier, life will likely get harder for many of us in this new year. Are we ready for that? Will you keel over? Will you compromise your faith? Or will you stand firm? Will you maintain the fire of the gospel within you? May God have mercy upon us. Well, I know that real life examples they're helpful, and so let me share one from the Reformation era, uh, a snippet from history that I read, uh, Pastor Share, from one of the commentaries I've been reading through, okay? It goes like this. Here's an example. I hope you can be inspired somewhat. 
The English Reformation was a blaze ignited by the flaming deaths of its faithful leaders during the persecution of the Catholic Queen, Bloody Mary. Most famous were Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, courageous preachers whose faith was put to the test in the flames. As they were tied to the stake, Latimer said to his friend, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. This is how they were encouraging each other in the midst of being burnt at the stake. Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, play the, play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. That's how we should encourage one another as well as we face the hardships in life. And so my hope is that God would be gracious in allowing us to experience a similar kind of revival in Northern Virginia as he uses faithful Christians who possess the fire of the gospel within to set ablaze thousands upon thousands of lives whom he has set apart for his glory. So may I ask that you strive to display that gospel fire that you're meant to possess in this new year. Can I get a little more practical? Did everyone survive the terrible snowstorm yesterday? Can you believe how many things got canceled the day before or the, the morning of because of a few drops of rain? Since when did Northern Virginia become so fragile? You know, when I first moved here, it wasn't like this. Schools remained open, right, even after a few inches of snow, and gradually things sort of eroded, in my opinion. A little bit of snow forecasts day before everything is shuts down. And guess what? The churches, they follow and lockstep. They say, we're going to follow the public schools here. So the schools shut down. Guess what? The churches decide to shut down. It cannot be the case with us. The experts say that it's going to be quite a snowy season this winter. I'm sure you've heard. And when it snows in Northern Virginia, I've now come to expect that, yes, the schools will shut down rather quickly, but please do not expect the church to close its doors. Okay. Pastor Xiong, such a jokester. After I share this in 9 o'clock service through our cacao chat room, I said, the churches will not, I'll be, I'll be the first one here to plow the snow, okay, if it happens. If there's snow, I'm going to be here. I'll be, I'll be clearing out the driver, and, and he texts the staff. He's like, actually, we'll be the ones clearing the snow. <laughs> That's partially true. I'll be here as well. Okay? I'll be here as well. We're, we're a team, team effort. All right, go team. <clears throat> and I'm going I'm to do my best to convince the CAM leaders as well to keep the CAM open even when the conditions are harsh outside, I, I would ask that she would invest in some salt for the driveway <laughs> and some good snow boots for you and your children. I thought, why would it be a bad thing for your kids to have this precious memory as they look back at their childhood of getting snuck in the snow on their way to church and then having to walk partial, partial way, having to walk through the snow, trudging through, 
Dad, where are we going? Son, we're going to church to worship the Lord. <laughs> what's wrong with that? Honestly, what's wrong with that? Right? Only then will they truly know that mom and dad really love Jesus, wouldn't they? So let's do our part to demonstrate that kind of fire within us. Lastly, okay, but I warn you, the last point is not a short one, okay? I'm still gonna go over 12 o'clock. And I've already shared quite a bit uh, already, but verse 10 is actually the, the most important verse in this chapter because it mentions tears of bitter weeping. And I say it's the most important one because without these tears, there's no way we can become a cup of staggering or a heavy stone or a blazing pot or a flaming torch. There's no way. This is the foundation, in a way. It's also the reason why the title of the message is A House Built on Tears of Bitter Weeping. So what does verse 10 say? It says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, key phrase here, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And so the vision is this. It's a vision of God pouring out grace that would enable his people to weep bitterly over the one they have unjustly pierced. They have pierced him unjustly. Who do you think they pierced? When have you ever heard of or heard the most gut-wrenching cry in your lifetime? Can you think of the, the most gut-wrenching cry you've witnessed? I'm sure we'd all acknowledge that there are different levels of tears, yes? There are certain tears that actually don't move me at all. But I see certain tears, I'm like, you know, an example would be when my youngest one cries because his older sister isn't listening to his every demand. Actually, that kind of tear, it makes me angry, right? <laughs> makes me angry. But guess what? He's our youngest one, so he still <laughs> doesn't get spanked all that much. We should spank him more, to be honest, but, right? We, we spoiled him. But then there are tears that are understandable, such as when you fall sick, and you're experiencing much physical pain. You know, we can all empathize with people who shed such tears. You know, tears that I often witness at weddings are also tears that we could all understand and get behind, right? There's nothing inappropriate about such tears. In fact, I love to see the bride, the groom, and the parents cry together. It's such a sweet moment. But then there are tears that are gut-wrenching, and those are the ones who, <clears throat> or those are the ones you not only see, but you can hear because they come from the deepest part of the soul. And these tears are commonly shed when a loved one is lost. So the most gut-wrenching cry that I've ever heard was when I saw 
an aged mother cry over the body of her adult son. I couldn't help but to just, it wasn't just trickles. It was like, uh, this is very heavy, like heavy tears. Couldn't help but to grieve, feel her pain. Now, the ancient Jews had an example of this in their collective memory as a people, which is what is referenced in verse 11, okay? This verse initially will throw you off because I, I had no idea. I had to look into this. It's on that day, again, the mourning in Jerusalem, right, the grieving in Jerusalem will be as great as the grieving for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. What in the world is this? Well, again, I did some studying, okay? And this is believed to be a reference to the deep mourning that followed King Josiah's death in the Battle of Megiddo, right? You see, understand that God's people did not have that many good kings in their history, but King Josiah was one of those very rare good kings, which made him incredibly well-loved by the people. And so when he lost his life in battle, there was a great grieving over his death across the land, where basically it says every member of every family was grieving over the loss of their precious, beloved king. It's like in Jewish history, if, if you want to cite an example of great national mourning, right? I guess you're supposed to cite King Josiah's death because everyone's supposed to know about this. This is in their collective memory. But here's the thing. Here's what was surprising to me. <laughs> you would want your king to die a noble death, right? It wasn't a noble death. I mean, he died a fair death. In a sense, he deserved to die. See, if you read the story, he entered into a battle that he wasn't supposed to be fighting in to begin with. Where he was a good king, but that doesn't mean he didn't make mistakes. Okay, he made a mistake here. And it says that he disguised himself and went into battle against this Egyptian king who actually warned him not to engage. He was just kind of passing through Israel to get to the north to wage war against the evil empire Babylon. And for whatever reason, King Josiah decides to kind of stick his neck in and say, hey, I'm gonna fight you. The Egyptian king says, no, not your place. God says, don't. But Josiah just decides to engage and the story ends with him getting shot by an arrow and dying. And so it was a fair, just death. And yet because he was so well loved by the people, the whole nation still mourned for him greatly. Why do I share that? Well, the point I'm trying to make is this. If people would mourn over someone who died justly, how great do you think our mourning should be over our great king who died an unjust death, an unfair death? See, the tears shed over King Josiah were by and large tears of sadness. I'm so sad, so sorrowful my king died. But you see, the tears that we're to shed over King Jesus, our beloved king, 
are supposed to be more than tears of sadness. They're also meant to be tears of repentance because he was unjustly pierced by none other than us, you and me. We're the guilty ones. As I come upon this portion, I, I, I was reminded of a devotional that I wrote for the church several years ago during Passion Week. And <clears throat> I thought I'd just share that devotion, at least part of it, because it helps us understand the difference between tears of sadness and tears of repentance that we're speaking about right now. Okay, but first, you gotta read, or listen to rather, Luke chapter 23, because that's, that's what the devotional is based on. And let me just read two verses for us, okay? And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Okay, he's headed to, Jesus is headed to the cross. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And I wrote, Remember that even before Jesus was crucified, he was stripped naked, beaten, and whipped, almost to the point of being unrecognizable. A crown of thorns was placed on his head to further mock and ridicule our Savior King. He was then forced to carry a wooden cross up the hill he was to die on, but was physically unable to. It's in this moment we read of the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. They could not bear the sight of their beloved endure such great suffering, so they wept for him. Of course, of course they would. Who wouldn't? But it's also in this moment Jesus speaks, okay? Though his body is broken, his mind is clear, and he looks upon those who weep for him, and he says, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. These are truly surprising words spoken by our Savior. It's not as if he doesn't understand why we would be moved the tears at the sight of his suffering, of course he understands, but he wants us to understand the reason why he suffered, the reason why he died as he did. It wasn't simply for us, it was because of us. The late John Stott once wrote, before we begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. In other words, we're to weep for ourselves and for our children because our sins are so great. Our Savior had to die for us because we are so wicked. Given these truths, Jesus does not want or need our sympathy. He wants us to repent of our sins. He wants us to count him as precious and cling to him in faith. He doesn't need us to sing songs that sentimentalize his death in some touchy-feely way. He's not some rose that's trampled on the ground for us. He is our suffering servant, yes, but he's also our sovereign king who conquered sin and death once and for all so that we may live. That's one of the better devotionals I wrote. So, brothers, sisters, it's, it's not only important that we cry, but why we cry, right? Do we cry because we feel sorry for others, including poor Jesus? Or do we ever cry over the grief and guilt of piercing our Savior. My hope and prayer for us in this new year is that we as a people would humbly build God's house, not simply with tears of sorrow, but with tears of repentance, because it's the tears 
of repentance that lead to true joy and freedom in Christ. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the assurance that like Jerusalem, the church universal stands as a cup of staggering and a heavy stone against the schemes of the enemy. We thank you that because of your mighty hand that upholds your people, even the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Lord, may we then live confidently and courageously that our lives would be like a blazing pot and a flaming torch, setting ablaze the hearts of those who encounter us. And as we look with hopeful eyes into this new year, may the reality of our sin that led to the unjust piercing of our Savior soften our hearts and cause us to bitterly weep in our brokenness and yearning for redemption. Build your church, O Lord, upon the tears of your saints. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray, amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I'd like to uh, invite you to the Lord's table this morning. And as we consider what we heard from God's word today, uh, may the Lord's table